So the New Testament reading is taken from Matthew, chapter 26, verses 36 to 46. And that can be found on page page 832 in the Bibles in your chairs. Then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I go over there and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. And going a little further, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, So could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, for the second time, he went away and prayed, My father, If this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. Those words are very, give a real sense of what the talk's going about. Not that I'm encouraging you to to switch off now, but uh, they give a sense of what Jesus has come to do for us. As Ben said, my name's Tom Smith. I'm a member of the uh, congregation here. And can I add my welcome to uh, everyone here, especially if you're new or visiting uh, this bank holiday weekend, the sunny bank holiday August weekend. And as Ben said, we're on the final step in our summer series around encounters with Jesus, people who have met Jesus and talked to him. We've been thinking about those gospel accounts and what they can teach us about who Jesus is and why he came probably worth just having a pause before we get into the passage. Just for a minute, just think about how awesome a privilege that is. This account in the Gospels isn't a make-believe story or a novel of some uh, literary merit. It's real-life witness accounts of events around 2,000 years ago with a proven track record of historical truth. And that history isn't of some worthy figure or great hero emperor or king, but the actual being and presence of God. It says in John chapter 14, verse 11, I am in the Father and the Father is in me. So in the Gospels, we see who God the Father really is through Jesus. That's amazing, isn't it, brothers and sisters? By reading and studying these words, we can get an understanding of the very nature of the almighty and everlasting God the creator and sustainer of the whole universe. It's a bit of a scary responsibility for those of us who speak at the front. 
It's quite an awesome bit to say we're talking about that awesome creator. So I'll need God's help to speak, and we'll all need God's help to understand that. So let's pray together before I begin. Lord Jesus, thank you that we can see who you are in the words of the Bible, and that we can see the Father through you. Please help me to speak clearly and accurately, and by your Spirit, help us all to understand more clearly who you are. Amen. So, I don't know about you, but I was a bit surprised when I first read this passage after Ken asked me to speak at that way back uh, as he was about to go on sabbatical as part of the Encounters with Jesus series. Because although there are two encounters with Jesus here in this morning's passage, both are a little bit one-sided in their narrative. In fact, it is Jesus who does all the speaking, and the response of the disciples is to do the exact opposite of what Jesus asks, and fall asleep again and again and again, while the response of God the Father is to refuse the earnest and heartfelt pleading of his Son. So before we get into those two encounters, let me help set the scene. Jesus and his disciples have just finished their last meal together, part of the Jewish Passover festival. He's been clear that he will be betrayed by one of his closest friends and given a picture of what his death will mean through the breaking of bread and sharing of wine, starting the remembrance of his death that we still give thanks for today through communion The fellowship meal, as Ben said, opened all who believe and trust in Jesus as Lord and Saviour for those who rely on his righteousness and not on any goodness or merit of our own. That opportunity is open to all of us after I finish speaking. But after the disciples finish that meal, they set out together singing a song of triumph, the psalm that was read for us earlier, that song that says, actually, a new day is coming. Open to me the gates of righteousness that I may enter through them and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord. The righteous shall enter through it. I thank you that you have answered me and have become my salvation. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. So with leaving that fellowship meal or the high of singing these amazing songs and the psalm ending with a great shout of triumph, oh, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. His steadfast love endures forever. From that high experience of fellowship and trust, almost immediately afterwards, we have Jesus' words to his disciples that they all would desert him. And in response to Peter's vehement denial that he would ever leave his Lord, even if I must die with you, I will not deny you, the events of Gethsemane unfold. So we move to the events of these two encounters with Jesus that we're focusing on this morning. I'm going to start with Jesus' encounter with his disciples. So in verse 36, then Jesus went with them to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to the disciples, sit here while I go and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, he began to be sorrowful and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Then move on to verse 40. And he came to his disciples and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, so could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray that you may not fall into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. 
Verse 43, and again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And verse 45, then he came to his disciples and said to them, sleep and take your rest later on. See, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. So three times here, Jesus, in his deepest need, after having been assured by Peter that he would be with him forever, having had that high of fellowship, Jesus asks his disciples to stay awake for him, to watch with him. And three times, they fall asleep. Now, I'll be honest with you, I like my sleep. I have a reputation for falling asleep at inopportune times. I often have to be reminded of a plot of a film that I've been watching and somehow missed crucial plot lines. And although it may be anathema to some of you here, in the match of the day highlights of last week's match of Newcastle, Man City, which described as one of the greatest games of football that this city has seen for a long time, I still managed to fall asleep halfway through. I did get to the end, 3-3 draw, sounds cool. My son, as he often did, summed this up when he got me this card for Father's Day earlier this year. The dad there falling asleep in the sofa, although hopefully not with a paper online. That is a normal sleep, but the disciples' failure here seems to be of a completely different order to those casual sofa snoozes. Faced with a repeated and heartfelt plea by their Lord to simply stay awake, they fail time and time and time again. Now we maybe get a deeper glimpse of the causes of this slumber in Luke's account of the event. Obviously Luke uh, did, uh, took lots of careful evidence and look at this and had a medical understanding. Maybe he was able to offer his medical diagnosis. So in Luke chapter 22, verse 45, he diagnosed them as sleeping from sorrow. Maybe some of us experienced that complete and utter exhaustion that comes a reaction to devastating and stressful events. That seems a likely diagnosis of what was going here with the disciples. But whatever the cause, their encounter with Jesus is not one they're going to look back when in pride. In the devastation and anguish that Jesus faces, they're of no use, no comfort, no help. And when I feel like I've let the Lord down through sin, doubt, laziness, and temptation, I get some comfort the fact that he restored these individuals and built their church on their, on their witness and faithfulness. So I think the encounter with Jesus here reveals something about Jesus and his human need for support, friendship, and care, as well as the complete failure of his disciples to be able to provide that. That Jesus example is a helpful one to us as we think about our needs. Too often uh, we can just respond to the how are you over coffee time, maybe with a glib and superficial answer. It's one reason why I find the support and membership of our midweek groups so important. My experience is that it's through these groups, through their varieties and strengths and weaknesses, that's where we experience the support and care of real Christian love. And as we get ready to start that new term together, as Ben said in uh, two, two weeks' time, 
can encourage us all to commit to being part of a small group. We still have this commitment to our group on our fridge, and whose ever idea it was to have it as a fridge magnet was genius. Those small groups, those midweek groups, is where I've experienced and hopefully provided some of the love, care, and friendship that Jesus is literally crying out for. The second experience here in Gethsemane is a very different one. That of Jesus' heartfelt and earnest pleading with his father. Again, three times. So back in the passage, verse 39, and going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Again, for a second time, he went away and prayed, My father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. And verse 44, So leaving them again, he went away and prayed for the third time, saying the same words again. So we have here an anguished conversation between two persons of the Trinity, in which the Son of God pleads with bloody sweat and tears that this cup pass from me. To understand this in all of its fullness, we're going to need a little bit of context. First of all, we'll need a little bit of understanding about the Trinity, the three persons that make up our God. We've said a little bit about it in the creed we've read, and it's not easy or to grasp or understand. And I don't know about you, but when I find things difficult to understand, I tend to just Google it. Uh, obviously, you've got to use a little bit of uh, caution and understanding of what the results say. My boss sometimes likes to use big words in his emails, which I have no idea what it means. And it's great to see those definitions. But in understanding what the complex world of the Trinity is about, Google is less useful. There is, however, long before Google, the founders of the Church of England helped us out. Their Google and, their, and our church's core beliefs about the Trinity had this as the very first out of their 39 articles of religion. So in talking about the Trinity, it says, there is only one living and true God who is eternal without body, indivisible and invulnerable. He is of infinite power, wisdom and goodness. He is the maker and preserver of all things, both visible and invisible. Within the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons who are of one substance, power and eternity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. That's the modern version of the article one taken from our website on what we believe. It does require deeper thought. It's not an easy concept to grasp on a Sunday morning. And I would never recommend the 39 articles as an easy read. But as a summary of what's important about what a church and also what isn't important, they're quite hard to beat. And if you think about joining us here at St. Joseph's, the What We Believe section, is the website, is a really useful resource. So on this encounter between Jesus and his Father, who are of one substance but three persons, we have a plea to let this cup be taken from me. We're going to need a little bit of background on that cup as well so we can understand what Jesus was really praying about in these anguish appeals to his Father. Because we can sometimes get caught up in thinking this cup was just about the physical agony and crucifixion and torture. 
That was certainly a horrific experience, but one that was common, or at least usual in that time. The cup referred to here is of a completely different order. This cup that Jesus refers to, that once taken away, is not the suffering of physical death, but rather the cup of judgment. This is the righteous judgment of God against the sinful and wicked humanity. Jeremiah 25 verses 9 to 11 describes these effects vividly. I will devote them to destruction and make them a horror, a hissing and an everlasting desolation. Moreover, I will banish them from the voice of mirth and the voice of gladness, the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride, the grinding of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste. And this judgment, in this death that Jesus knows is coming, he will meet his father, one person, and meeting his father, and will face judgment. And that judgment is he is guilty. Jesus must take the place of those who he has come to give life to. Jesus must die our death in order to free us from the consequences of our sin. His anguish is quailing at the fact of divine rejection by the one to whom he is bound for all eternity. This troubled soul is wrestling with God on the eve of divine judgment. Let's take a moment just to consider this, that our mighty creator, the word of God, there at the beginning of all things, from whom all things were made, faced being cut off from his father in a righteous and terrible judgment. Brothers and sisters, this morning, what depths of love Jesus had for us, for a fallen humanity that had no hope of salvation without his love. Certainly, we didn't deserve this sacrifice at all. And in the face of this anguish, Jesus' plea to his Father is to avoid it. But then, in a supreme effort, only possible for one who is both fully God and as well as fully human, Jesus reminds himself that without this sacrifice, without the judgment of his father being fulfilled, there is no purpose in his life or teaching, so he is driven on his knees to prayer. And I think there's a couple of key things that we can learn from Jesus' encounter with his father. So we've already seen that Jesus' prayer was necessary. His anguish needed resolved. It required a conversation with his father. At a time when he is being vulnerable, deserted by friends, facing the need to take the righteous judgment of his father, Jesus is driven to his knees. The prayer is also clear. It's to the point. It stems from the heart of his very being. His prayer is direct. The request isn't in particularly flowery or beautiful language. It is simple and clear. And also notice that it's repeated consistently. This isn't the babbling or vain repetition that Jesus condemns in the Sermon on the Mount. But rather it is showing consistency of approach and serious of intent. It's the very opposite of an easy, shallow prayer that allows us to walk away and think no more about it. This repeated prayer in this situation indicates determination and confidence around the request. 
It's perhaps more reminiscent of that daily dogged determination that those great prayers really show. I'm reminded of, with great thanks of the lady who prayed for me every day of my life until she died. Quietly, unobtrusively. In fact, I didn't know about it until her funeral, but with such consistency. Brothers and sisters, can we only wish for the same legacy for our own lives, our own prayers? However, despite this fact that this prayer was clear, direct, serious, there's no obvious reply. We know from the commentary in Hebrews chapter 5 that the prayer was heard. In Hebrews chapter 5, 7, it says, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears. Jamie was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reference. But there's no direct response from God. As we've seen earlier in the Gospels at either Jesus' baptism or the transfiguration, now the answer is shown through the circumstances of Jesus' life. Because Jesus' pattern of prayer was not seeking to manipulate God, but rather opening himself up to doing his Father's, to doing God's will. And in prayer, surrendering himself to that perfect will, even though it would take on the agony of taking the judgment of sins for the whole world. So the answer was, for God's will to be done, that cup of judgment couldn't be taken away. We need to thank God for that. Because without bearing our sins, there would be no hope for us or the world. We would face the righteous judgment for our sin and disobedience. The missing mission of Jesus described in John chapter 3 verses 16 and 17 could be fulfilled so that for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son not send Jesus into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved from through him and that is the cup of judgment that Jesus is praying about in Gethsemane that needs to be drunk it needs to be taken by Jesus. Otherwise, this mission cannot be fulfilled. So while God's gift of being put, put right with him is free to us, it was bought with a tremendous and terrible price. The gospel may be cheap, may be simple, sorry, but it is not superficial. It is free, but certainly not cheap. That's why the cross is at the center of our faith. For without it, we have no hope of forgiveness, no chance of being right with our maker and creator. But because of Jesus' obedience, we can be put right with God. And as we close this part of the service, let's spend some time in quiet thanks for that before we'll join together in thanksgiving for the words of the next song. Perhaps using this in your quiet reflection I'm lost in wonder. I'm lost in love. I'm lost in praise forevermore. Because of Jesus, his unfailing love, I am forgiven. I am restored. Amen.